This episode is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy the show. Perhaps they had no business being there in the first place. A cold, barren, lifeless rock in the North Atlantic. Perhaps the whispers of superstition and warnings of otherworldly forces went unheeded. A mistake which cost three men their lives. Perhaps there's still some clue, a missing piece of the puzzle, still left to be found on that weather-beaten little island off the coast of Scotland. Something that can clear the thick, eerie fog of uncertainty away from this century-old mystery. Perhaps not. Because for all the speculation, for all the theories sane and wild, and for every little token of evidence that has been pieced together as to why three men vanished from an isolated little island in 1900, we're still left with the same emptiness as the lighthouse which they were tending was found. From the poem Flannan Isle, Though we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere, of the three men's fate we found no trace of any kind in any place, but a door ajar, and an untouched meal, and an overtoppled chair. We seemed to stand for an endless while, though still no word was said. Three men alive on Flannan Isle, who thought on three men dead. We're exploring the Elon Moore Lighthouse mystery on this episode of Blurry Photos. Hey everybody, I'm your host, David Flora. Welcome to the show. Quick announcement for you. Going to be doing another live show at the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. This one's on Sunday, February 25th at 8 p.m. Central Time. Love to see you come out for that one. Got a weekend time slot for this one, which is nice. And it's not the Chicago Podcast Festival, but it is the same folks who are running it. And they did a great job with the last one, so looking forward to it. Hope you can make it. Tickets are $15. I might do a, a giveaway here or there in the couple months leading up to it. Uh, I'll post the information on Facebook and the website, Twitter, all that good stuff. Again, that's a live show, Sunday, February 25th, 8 p.m. at the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. Now, hope you got your oil skins and wellies on, because we're braving some harsh conditions for a damn good topic this episode. And like a first-order Fresnel lens, I hope to cast a long light in the darkness to guide some reason safely into port. This particular topic has seen some bump in popularity, or curiosity, as it were, in recent years, and for good reason. In the right conditions, it's a very compelling story and an enduring what happened. So in this episode, I'll tell you about the Elon Moore Lighthouse mystery, or the mystery of Flannan Isle, as it's sometimes known. I'll go over the facts about the Isle and the lighthouse, as well as some info about the keepers to set the scene a bit. Then I'll go into the story that's commonly told about the disappearance, and then debunk anything that needs debunking. Spoilers, there are things that need debunking. We'll finish up with possible explanations and see if anything manages to rise to the surface. So let's set sail for the wild North Atlantic, around the British Isles, up by the Outer Hebrides to Elon Moor. The Hebrides are an archipelago off the west coast of Scotland, a broken island chain shielding most of northwest Scotland from the wrath of the Atlantic Ocean. It's remote, and life there takes tenacity and often inhospitable conditions. 
So it's safe to say that 32 kilometers or 20 miles west of the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides is even harsher in environment. It's there that a small group of islands known as the Flannan Isles, or the Seven Hunters, lay, the biggest of which being Elon Moore. Basically breaks down to Big Island, even though it's not that big. It's just the biggest of the bunch. And it's on this remotest of remote islands that a lighthouse was built, where three men would disappear one day in 1900, sparking a mystery that has persisted for over a hundred years. Elon Moore juts out of the cold ocean, a grassy plateau with sheer cliffs hundreds of feet high. The islands did not see much habitation through the centuries, owing, of course, to their remoteness, but they have been sought in the distant past by monks for spiritual retreat and sheep herders for grazing. The monks are often connected to St. Flannan, a 7th century Irish preacher, though the namesake is not certain. What was certain, however, was that the isles lay in a shipping lane, and navigation near them was treacherous in the best of conditions. So a lighthouse was discussed by the Northern Lighthouse Board as early as 1853, and again in 1880. But, owing to bureaucracy... Nothing was done. Shocking. It wasn't until 1892 that a lighthouse was finally commissioned, and a design was put forth by David Allen Stevenson, who, fun fact, was a cousin of the author Robert Louis Stevenson. After an arduous building process, in which one man lost his life, it became operational in December of 1899, a 23-meter or 75-foot-tall tower attached to a one-story house. There were two landings at the island, one on the east side and one on the west side. Neither was particularly kind to any ships wanting to dock there, but the more shielded east side was much preferable, though farther away from the lighthouse itself. Once on the island, custom, maybe relief, was to doff your cap, turn clockwise, and thank God. In accordance with NLB regulations, the light was kept by three men who worked in shifts, a principal lightkeeper and two assistant lightkeepers. It was a system that rewarded seniority, many times over skill, and one had to put in years of grueling work as an assistant before they could be promoted to principal. And as you can imagine, being a lightkeeper was a tremendously arduous job. Not only did you have to adhere to strict routines, brave the worst weather conditions, and cope with numbing isolation from humanity. You also had to keep the stiffest of upper lips and strive for perfection, for people's lives literally depended on you, and the smallest of errors could lead to catastrophe. It was, in a word, stressful. Most lighthouses also had what were called occasional lightkeepers as well, usually local residents trained in general duties to take the place of anyone who might be ill or on holiday. It just so happened that the occasional was needed in December of 1900, perhaps saving the fate of one scheduled assistant, but sealing his own. The principal at the lighthouse was James Ducott, a seasoned keeper with 22 years' experience, including almost five years as principal. First assistant was Thomas Marshall, with almost five years' experience. Second assistant, William Ross, had taken ill 
and was replaced by occasional Donald MacArthur. With only 26 knights training under his belt, MacArthur was definitely a novice and apparently known for his bad temper. The fifth member of staff who had the lucky draw of shore leave was Joseph Moore. Side note, William Ross had escaped a brush with death previously on the island when he was unloading cargo from a ship and a tram cable snapped while he was in it, sending him flying off a cliff into the rocks below, somehow only breaking his arm. I mean, who says Final Destination is an original concept? So I'm going to tell you the story of what happened at the lighthouse on Elan Moor. One caveat, this is the version you'll hear most often. Now you can read between the lines on that, but I'll be doubling back on stuff afterwards when I talk about the investigation. Around midnight on December 17th, 1900, the steamship Arctor all but limped into Leith, the port district of Edinburgh. She had run aground on the Carfi Rock that day, and while damaged, was still able to make it to port, where her captain, Francis Arthur Holman, told his superiors about a missing light on the Flannan Islands, which were passed on the 15th. The more pressing matter, however, was the damage to the ship, and thus word about the light was not sent to the Northern Lighthouse Board until the 28th. By then, however, the NLB had already become aware of the problem. In the event that something went awry or a light was not lit, a watchman on the Isle of Lewis was supposed to keep lookout and report any failures. Roderick McKenzie had this distinction, but no word had come from him either. It wasn't until December 27th, when the relief ship Hesperus, carrying supplies and assistant lightkeeper Joseph Moore arrived at Elon Moore, did anyone have an idea that something was wrong. Approaching the island, already off schedule and late because of bad weather, Captain James Harvey noticed a lack of any flags that should have been flying on the lighthouse. Assuming they just hadn't seen the ship, the captain sounded a horn. No response. Growing concerned, he shot a signal rocket from the deck. And again, no response. Assistant Lightkeeper Moore began to have a bad feeling and was very reticent to comply when the captain ordered him ashore to investigate. Moore made his way up the stairs, finding the gate closed, and then to the entrance door which led to the kitchen. It too was closed, but not locked. Moore's suspicions grew. No one was answering his calls. None of this was normal. When he opened the door, three big blackbirds took flight from the top of the tower, heading for the sea. And entering the kitchen, he found an overturned chair on the floor and uneaten meals on the table. Fighting dread, he continued to look around. The clocks had stopped. There was no fire in the fireplace, 
and distinctly cold ashes in the grate. The beds were unmade, and one oilskin coat was hanging on a hook with two empty hooks beside it. Fully freaked the F out, Joseph Moore ran back to the landing and relayed what he'd found. He returned with a couple crew to search the island, but they found no trace of Ducat, Marshall, or MacArthur. It was as if the men had vanished into thin air. Word was sent back to the NLB, and Superintendent Robert Muirhead sailed there on the 29th to investigate. He confirmed Moore's observations and added what was written by Assistant Lightkeeper Marshall in the logbook. December 12th. Gale, north by northwest. Sea lashed to fury. Storm bound, 9pm. Never seen such a storm. Everything shipshape. Ducat irritable. 12pm. Storm still raging. Wind steady. Storm bound. Can I go out? Ship passed sounding foghorn. Could see lights of cabins. Ducat quiet. MacArthur crying. December 13. Storm continued through night. Wind shifted west by north. Ducat quiet. MacArthur praying. 12 noon. Grey daylight. Me, Ducat MacArthur prayed. December 15th, 1pm, storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. It was chalked up to accident by the NLB, though many had their reservations. Whispers of malevolent spirits or a curse attached to the island were rampant. Not four years later, lightkeeper John McLaughlin was working up on the light tower when he lost his footing falling some seventy feet to his death. Elon Moore and its lighthouse had claimed yet another victim out in the cold emptiness of the North Atlantic Ocean. The poet Wilfred Wilson Gibson immortalized the event in his 1912 poem, Flannan Isle. Though three men dwell on Flannan Isle to keep the lamp alight, As we steered under the lee, we caught no glimmer through the night. A passing ship at dawn had brought the news, and quickly we set sail to find out what strange thing might ail the keepers of the deep-sea light. The winter day broke blue and bright, with glancing sun and glancing spray, as o'er the swell our boat made way, as gallant as a gull in flight. But as we neared the lonely isle, and looked up at the naked height, and saw the lighthouse towering white, with blinded lantern that all night had never shot a spark of comfort through the dark. So ghostly in the cold sunlight it seemed, that we were struck the while with wonder all too dread for words. And as into the tiny creek we stole beneath the hanging crag, we saw three queer, black, ugly birds, too big, by far, in my belief, for gillimet or shag, like seamen sitting bolt upright upon a half-tied reef. But as we neared, they plunged from sight, without a sound or spurt of white. 
and still too mazed to speak, we landed and made fast the boat and climbed the track in single file, each wishing he was safe afloat on any sea, however far, so it be far from Flannan Isle. And still we seemed to climb and climb, as though we'd lost all count of time and so must climb forevermore. Yet all too soon, we reached the door. The black, sun-blistered lighthouse door that gaped for us ajar. As on the threshold for a spell, we paused. We seemed to breathe the smell of lime wash and of tar, familiar as our daily breath, as though it were some strange scent of death. And so, yet wondering, side by side, we stood a moment, still tongue-tied, and each with black foreboding eyed the door, ere we should fling it wide, to leave the sunlight for the gloom. Till, plucking courage up at last, hard on each other's heels we passed into the living room, yet as we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread for dinner, meat and cheese and bread, but all untouched, and no one there. As though when they sat down to eat, ere they could even taste, alarm had come, and in their haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for at the table head a chair lay tumbled on the floor. We listened, but we only heard the feeble cheeping of a bird that starved upon its perch, and listening still, without a word, we set about our hopeless search. We hunted high, we hunted low, and soon ransacked the empty house. Then over the island, to and fro, we ranged, to listen and to look in every cranny, cleft, or nook that might have hid a bird or mouse. But though we searched from shore to shore, we found no sign in any place, and soon again stood face to face before the gaping door, and stole into the room once more as frightened children steal. Aye, though we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere, of the three men's fate we found no trace of any kind in any place but a door ajar, and an untouched meal, and an overtoppled chair. And as we listened in the gloom of that forsaken living room, a chill clutch on our breath, we thought how ill chance came to all who kept the flannan light, and how the rock had been the death of many a likely lad, how six had come to sudden end, and three had gone stark mad, and one whom we'd all known as friend had leapt from the lantern one still night, and fallen dead by the lighthouse wall. And long we thought on the three we sought, and of what might yet befall. Like curs a glance has brought to heel, we listened, flinching there, and looked and looked on the untouched meal and the overtoppled chair. We seemed to stand for an endless while, though still no word was said. Three men alive on Flannan Isle, who thought, and three men dead. It's a chilling story, and most of it is true. However, the parts that aren't true really aren't true. Let's start with Moore's report. He did not, in fact, find an overturned chair nor uneaten meals nor was there any report of blackbirds flying ominously out to sea. That seems to be nothing more than local legend as an explanation for what happened to the souls of the men. 
Now, the rest is pretty accurate. An excerpt from Captain Harvey's telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board stated, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival this afternoon, no signs of life was to be seen on the island. Poor fellas, must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. I've left Moore, MacDonald, Master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning till you make other arrangements. Robert Muirhead's investigation added a few details, namely that the work on the morning of the 15th had been done. Pots and pans cleaned, kitchen tidied up, lamp trimmed, and oil filled. The logbook's last entry was made by Ducat on the morning of the 15th, apparently with nothing unusual indicated. The Arctor had not seen the light the night of the 15th, so whatever happened had to have taken place on the afternoon of the 15th. So what about the meal and the chair and the log entries and all that? Complete bull hockey. Gibson's poem was the source of the uneaten meal and chair overturned, completely dramatized from his own imagination, and possibly inspired by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's account of the Mary Celeste with its, quote, uneaten breakfast and still warm tea. In fact, it's a pretty annoying detail that is not true, but is parroted by almost every source on the subject. Neither Moore nor Muirhead made a mention of a chair, let alone an overtoppled one and uneaten meals. The logbook's contents were not actually mentioned by Muirhead, and the dramatic entries ending with God is over all were fabricated in a 1929 pulp magazine, True Strange Stories, in an article by Ernest Fallon titled The Strange Log of the Seven Hunters. That was then recounted in a 1965 book by Vincent Hayes Gaddis, an Indiana reporter who apparently coined the term Bermuda Triangle and was heavily influenced by our buddy Charles Fort. It's repeated often with the legend, along with the food and chair, to give a creepier feel. It accomplishes that, but it's just not real. The man who was to watch for light failure, Roderick McKenzie, was questioned about the length of time reporting the failure. Apparently, it was not uncommon for him to not be capable of seeing the light for days on end due to inclement weather. He confirmed that was the case around the 15th. So, the guy who's supposed to be able to say, hey, there's no light on, something's up, we better go check it out, wasn't able to see that there was no light on. It's like the backup generator going out. Now, it's been said, or made up more likely, that around the time another ship, reported as the Fairwin, was in the area on the night that the light had gone out, and the crew said they had seen, quote, a ghostly longboat. The three men who were rowing the boat were dressed in heavy rain gear and had faces with the color of bone. The crew of the Fairwin apparently called out to the men in the boat and blasted the horn, but there came no reply. Now, the reason that you can assume this is complete bollocks is because there was no rowboat or longboat at the island and no reason for the men to row out into the sea anyway. Additionally, I don't even know if the Fairwind is even on record. 
This is another thing that could have just been made up and thrown in for embellishment. But uh, one more detail that Moorhead added was that the western landing was mangled to hell and back. Ropes were strewn all over the rocks. A wooden crate, usually in a crevice 70 foot up the cliff, was gone. And iron railings up and down the steps and landing were torn up, displaced, and twisted. Additionally, a huge boulder from the top of the cliff had rolled down by the path, and a life buoy had been ripped from its position on the railing, probably not by human hands, just due to the nature of what he found there with the remains of it. With the oil skin coat inside, it was surmised that Ducat and Marshall had put on their oil skins and boots, but that MacArthur had not, possibly leaving the lighthouse in his quote-unquote shirt sleeves. Uh, you'd have to be off your head to go out without a coat in a place like that. And I keep saying oil skins, in case you don't know, it's just basically weatherproof coats or gear. They would make them uh, a variety of different ways at the time. Some of them they poured uh, tar and, and some wax on to make them waterproof. Anyway, what could have happened here? Well, a handful of explanations have been put forth over the years, some better than others. On the why even bother end of the spectrum, aliens, the men were abducted, going about their daily duties, all of a sudden, blue, 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 blue. there they go, off for the, the probings and the hybridizations and in, inseminating. Anyway, well, no one has put forth any evidence to this. I mean, you might as well say they slipped through a sudden rift in time and were transported into the future where they found work on starships, except for Ducat, who wound up being a Cardassian villain and a real thorn in the side of the Bajorans and Captain Benjamin Sisko. Seriously, I just finished Deep Space Nine, and it's all I could think about in this research. And you're welcome for me ruining this forevermore for you. But moving up the scale, an article in Scotsman newspaper called Disaster at a Lewis Lighthouse, Three Men Drowned, gave a detailed account with some inaccuracies, and then relayed info from Martin Martin's 1695 account of the islands, including superstitions and pygmies. And yes, that was his name, Martin Martin. I hope he slapped both of his parents for that. Not far away on the west coast of Lewis stands an arrangement of large stones called the Callanish Stones. Martin alludes to sacrifices made there and the Flannan Isles to be the place where bodies were taken to meet the gods. Also, there's a mention of the ruins of a small stone chapel, which are still there on the island, just spitting distance from the lighthouse, which he says heightens the sanctity of the island. There's also the story of John Morrison, marooned there in the 1600s. With no fire, he began to succumb to the elements, when a figure appeared to him and told him there was fire on the altar in the chapel. He was able to survive with that. The pygmy concept comes from Donald Monroe, a clergyman who had visited in 1563 and wrote a description of the Western Isles of Scotland, saying, A little isle called the Pygmy's Isle with a little kirk in it of their own handiwork. Within this kirk, the ancients of that country of the Lewis say that the said pygmies have been buried there. 
Many men of different countries have delved deeply the floor of the Little Kirk, and I myself among the rest, and have found in it deep under the earth certain bones and round heads of wonderful little size, alleged to be the bones of the said pygmies which may be likely, according to sundry histories that we read of the pygmies. I get $50 every time I say pygmies. But I leave this far to the ancients of Lewis. There are tales of what are called Luzberdan, which has been equated to the Gaelic word for pygmy. Uh, early maps show the isle with the name Lucraban, which is pretty close to the short-statured uh, Irish fairfolk name there. Pygmy Isle was also uh, a name sometimes ascribed to it, though it's not clear when that came about, and it didn't usually refer to Elon Moore itself. Bones have been found at or in the little chapel there, but examination has shown that they are only small mammal and bird bones. I think one account even said they found like a two-inch bone, and they're like, oh, little people! <laughs> I'm like, yeah. How, what, what is that? Their femur? Like, what do you, how, how is that a two, a two inch bone? Uh, just, just the hurdles people have to jump over. So the point there was that maybe there was something or someone or a set of someones on the island that didn't want humans to be there. And then there's also uh, some stories that mentioned the phantom of the seven hunters, which was a ghost or the devil or the ghost of the devil or some malarkey that lured the men over the cliffs. And again, it was just like, Hey, Hey bros, you're trespassing on my little rock in the Atlantic. It's the only thing I got. Get out. Going to kill you. And of course we can't forget the whole creature feature. Kelpies, the water spirit that inhabits the waterways uh, of Scotland and, and around that area had a version of them called storm kelpies that prowled the sea around Lewis looking to drown sailors and sink ships. Uh, there's also a story of a German ship that reported a giant sea serpent off the butt of Lewis in 1882. So much going on with that sentence. I love it. Uh, but, you know, crypt cryptids and ghosts make just as much sense as aliens in this scenario, in, in my opinion. It's stories and anecdotes, some of which, obviously, when you take a look at them, as in the case of the bones, that doesn't add up to anything but myth and folklore to explain the science of it, basically. But speaking of science, how about this blast from the not-too-distant past? Ergot poisoning. What if some of their grain stores had been contaminated with the old claviceps purpurea? Well, with the spasmodic and often hallucinatory effects of ergotism, it seems rather strange that things were put away nicely and nothing was out of order, according to the real uh, account of the investigation. Plus, would they all have just gone mad at once, darting out into the elements, two, two of them donning their coats first, shutting doors and gates behind them, only to take a dive into the sea? I just, I'm not sure it works like that. Even if one guy went mad and the other two tried to stop him, why didn't they go mad? Uh, you would think that they would be eating the same food. I, I don't know. It's It just seems like a lot of hurdles to jump in this scenario. But maybe a step closer to plausible, what about murder? Two men killed by the third 
and that man throwing himself into the sea. Close quarters, isolation, hard work, poor weather, supply and relief weight, this, it all adds up to mental stress. And depression is serious. Depression is serious. Friction between keepers did lead to murders in a handful of cases, but it was pretty rare. If you took that fictitious logbook seriously, you might think that something went down on the afternoon of the 15th, even leading up to it, with the so-and-so praying, so-and-so crying, so-and-so upset or irritable, or whatever the hell it said. But again, that's not real. And if we take Moorhead's and Moore's accounts of the state of the quarters, there was no sign of struggle, no blood, no splatter, no, no indication that there was beef between the men. A volatile temper was said to be part of MacArthur's character, but we'd have to invent a whole soap opera and scenario where they all went outside and threw each other off the cliffs. So, I, I think murder is lower on the list than you might expect. And you can see, with many of these theories, the list of events that would need to be manufactured grows, making the plausibility shrink. In my observation, anyway. To date... Arguably, the most plausible idea of what happened to the men that day is the same one that Robert Moorhead came to, that the men fell prey to accident and possibly a giant wave. James's daughter, Anna Ducat, gave an interview about the incident in which she relayed that her father hadn't originally wanted to take the job there because of how dangerous that particular lighthouse was. Moorhead pushed him to take it because of his reputation as a good keeper, so he did. And as I think about it, Moorhead was the only quote-unquote official investigator to the event. No police uh, ever came to look around, I don't think. And Moorhead certainly wanted to keep things going as smoothly as possible afterwards. I wonder if he felt some kind of responsibility and covered something up. Also consider that he took the logbook for documentation, but it has since disappeared. But I digress into wild speculation, so let's rein that in. Um, one thing that comes into play, possibly, is another statement made by Anna. She said her father had been fined five shillings earlier that year for damage that was done to landing tackle down at the West Landing. Now, in actuality, Thomas Marshall had found to be at fault, but Ducat, being the principal lightkeeper, assumed the responsibility. With the threat of bad weather and a churning, violent ocean, it's entirely possible Ducat and Marshall risked their lives to check that the equipment was secure so as not to be fined again and likely demoted for negligence. While doing so, one or both men could have been swept off the landing or cliffs by waves or wind, and MacArthur, with no time to spare, ran out to try and save them and was swept away himself. It may sound a bit silly that experienced old salts could be taken by the sea in such a fashion, but when conditions get bad in a place like that, there is sweet Fanny Adams you can do about it. A lot of stories will say the weather was calm and not out of the ordinary, however this is false, as storms battered the Hebrides for much of December. In fact, records indicate that the most rainfall ever to have come down in that area was in December of 1900. Uh, at least at the time, and at least for a long time. Uh, I'm not sure how long, if, if that has changed, I'm not sure how long that stood, but it was enough to be significant. 
Uh, incredibly strong gale force winds lashed the isles from at least the 12th onward, and very disturbed seas were noted around the Flannans, especially around the 15th. The 17th had reports of 75-foot waves in a singularly violent storm, finally clearing out on the 18th. Another bout of rough weather kicked up the night of the 19th and came and went until around the 27th. The weather was on and off uh, bad during that period. I mean, it was it was definitely a period of vicious, bitter weather. And even now, we still don't have the science down of how the sea really acts. Giant waves up to 200 feet high are rare, but possible, and had been observed before even then in 1900. Sudden, fast-moving, and incredibly powerful water swells called rogue waves are still a bit of a mystery. I mean, it was only in 1995 that a decent measurement of such a wave was taken when a mammoth 98-foot wave hit the Dropner oil rig in the North Sea, hence called the Dropner wave. It's entirely possible one or even several hit the island while the men were inexplicably outside. And I say inexplicably because no keeper in his right mind would have ventured out in such bad conditions. Uh, but here we have three that might have done so. And if your job is on the line, you might be convinced that securing a little box of tackle and ropes is something you have to do regardless. With the damage to the railings and the dislodged boulder, it's evident something hit the west landing of the island with immense power. I lean toward the view that whatever caused that damage took the keepers with it. The lighthouse was automated in 1971, and no keepers have had to endure the harsh conditions of the Flannan Isles since. Ultimately, we'll probably never know. And with the info we have at hand, I'll leave it for you to decide what happened at the lighthouse on Elon Moor. That's the Elon Moore Lighthouse Mystery in an inhospitable, wind and waves swept, eerie, empty nutshell. Now for a little palate cleanser. And I like to do this in the guise of a puns. I'm putting a moratorium on the outdoorsy shop specializing in soft checkered shirts called Flannel Islands. It's just too easy. But feel free to try the other clothier on Elon Moore that specializes in calf-length trousers and other breezy fashion. Capris and more. I'm very excited because I just got a subscription to the magazine all about the famous people from the islands of West Scotland. The celebrities. It'll supplement my issues of Scots Magazine nicely. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Blurry Photos. Please support the show by going over to Facebook and giving it a like. We climbed over 2200, so thank you all for that. Head on over and follow the show on Twitter, at Blurry underscore photos. If you can spare a minute, head over to iTunes and Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review, please. If you'd like something to listen to between episodes, why not try out a free trial at Audible? by going to audibletrial.com slash blurryphotos where you can get a free audiobook download from one of their thousands and thousands of books. 
There's some really good stuff in there. It's a 30-day trial membership, and if you don't like it, you cancel at any time. You get your audiobook. I get a monetary high five. Bob's your uncle. Fanny's your aunt. And all of that. Check out the other fine shows of the Chicago Podcast Cooperative, as well as our Brethren at the Dark Myths Collective. Don't forget to mark your calendars for Sunday, February 25th, 8 p.m. Central Time, at the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. Going to be doing a live taping of a show, and I'd love to see you there. Oh, one important thing, I've revamped a lot of the Patreon rewards and goals and such. So check us out on patreon.com slash blurry photos for the new reward levels and what all you get when you give. Also check out blurryphotos.threadless.com from some of our many awesome designs you can put on t-shirts, on mugs, tote bags, shower curtains, whatever, whatever you want. Usually they're running a free shipping deal on orders over $45 domestic and I think $80 international. So get yourself some swag and get enough so you don't have to pay for the shipping. And I think that's going to do it for this episode of Blurry Photos. I've been your host, David, the light in the darkness, Flora. Till next time, bye. Bye.